Talking coaching, rowing, and all things sports science. It's the Bro Show with Bill Tate and Rod Siegel. Well, welcome back to the Bro Show again. How are you going, Rodney? Yeah, really good. Thanks, Big Lightning. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Third guest in a row today, which is pretty exciting for us. Um, we're going to have a chat to uh, Dr. Elizabeth Patrick about breathing and life and also sport, particularly rowing, obviously, but certainly an area that we've been interested in for a little while, Rodney. Yeah, I've been waiting for this one for a while. I've been trying to lock down Lizzie for a little bit. So um, yeah, really good to have her here. Yeah. So welcome, Lizzie. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How many times have you been on podcasts before? Uh, this is my very first. Really? <laughs> and Lizzie is a, a podcast advocate and probably someone who uh, sends through great recommendations to me all the time. So it's great to actually get you on the show, Liz. Um, first and foremost, before we get stuck into what we're going to talk to today, I'm wondering if you could just tell everyone a little bit about you know, yourself, um, your background and how you got to this point of being um, you know, osteo to the stars. <laughs> uh, well, I'm your osteo, so That's I'm not right. sure you're a star. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was involved in the national team when there was a women's eight from 2005 to 2014. Um, my first season, you were coaching in 2005, and then 2013-14, I was coached by you as well, so we have a little bit of background mm. there. Um, during that time, I was also finishing off my exercise and sports science degree, uh, and then towards the very end of rowing, I was uh, completing my osteopathy degree. So you're a sports scientist as well. Oh, oh, now, well. now I really like it. Okay. Yeah, Way more credibility that. now. <laughs> um, so I suppose my interest in uh, musculoskeletal aspects of rowing and how to manage athletes um, from that point of view was really fostered by that um, by that time when I was rowing yeah so and obviously you were coxing as oh, well as yes. part of as yes, part of so that, that's probably uh, not to make too much of a distinction but I think part of it is you know you played a role at different times certainly when we worked together where um, you would you would work uh, at times very much within the crew and then also at times in planning uh, around how we did things outside of the crew. And, and part of the reason we got to this point of having a chat about this was obviously we had a lot of those long car trips up and down the Hume Highway to Sydney talking through you know, how we might do things better and what we'd be looking at. And one of those areas that we'd come back to a lot was, was breathing efficiency and mechanics. And it was an area that I was super, super interested in as, as we were rolling along there, wasn't it? Yeah, I think um, there was the car troops and then there was also our visualization sessions uh, during yeah. the race plan um, that I used to not enjoy so much. Um, having to talk through the race plan yeah. um, like that. So I think it was great for me to be able to incorporate a bit of breathing and a bit of um, that side of things to get the rowers more in the mode than just talking through a six-minute six race plan. Yeah, yeah. So what we're going to try and cover today is not so much to say, here's how you need to breathe in rowing, but it's actually to talk a little bit about, well, what happens when we're breathing because it's an automatic thing that that happens and a lot of people don't think about it and um, and probably people could afford to think about it and there are some natural dysfunctions that that uh, happen in everyday life and you'd see that clinic in a clinical setting all the time with, with everyday people but probably more and more once you understand a little bit more of it and certainly from a coach's point of view um, I've seen more and more once I've got a slight insight you can see how it's such a big factor in performance and uh, Athletes who appear to have natural talent quite often seem to seem to be very efficient with their breathing. So we're going to talk a little bit about the mechanics, 
common dysfunctions and maybe touch on a little bit, particularly from a clinical point of view, some of the things that you might suggest that people could think about. It's definitely not going to be a definitive thing, but it's going to be a little bit of an exploratory thing. Sound good? Mm. Brilliant. Let's get started. All right, Lizzie, so first and foremost, in terms of breathing, we all know we've got lungs, we open our mouth, air comes in, the diaphragm sort of pulls open our chest cavity a little bit and it sucks air down. Is, that, is it as simple as that? Uh, oh, yeah, I think to the layperson it surely is. Um, in terms of um, breathing, we call it respiration um, in an, a clinical way. There's primary respiration and secondary respiration. So primary respiration occurs more at a cellular level and secondary respiration occurs through that inhalation and exhalation phase. So there's two aspects, I suppose, when it comes to um, breathing and, and respiration, but I suppose um, as a layperson, we also look at the inhalation, exhalation, so breathing in and out. Okay, so is, and that's primary insulation? Secondary. Secondary. So in terms of the cellular stuff, is that is that where the oxygen actually gets used? Is that is that? Yes, that's more of the diffusion yeah, point okay. of view in the lungs and um, you know through mechanisms. Yeah, well, and we've actually covered a little bit of that when we spoke in an earlier podcast around the mechanisms of fatigue. I think we use analogy around the the road network in terms of the building the efficiency of taking the oxygen around through the road network through the capillaries and into the little factories. Um, yeah, exactly that. Yeah, so, so there's a couple of areas. I guess what we're sort of primary, primarily talking about is the mechanics of getting the air into the lungs mm. in one sense. Would that be would Yeah, that be yeah, right? absolutely. So um, taking the air in is, is through the diaphragm, So and that's the major muscle of respiration. And at rest, it does almost 100% of the inhalation aspect. So to have a, a really well-functioning diaphragm is really important. The other muscle that is involved in that is the external intercostal muscles. Um, and then there's the exhalation phase, um, which is a, a combination of muscles. So there's a little bit more to it. Um, the other side of things is that you do need your phrenic nerve, which is the nerve that innervates um, the diaphragm, which is, comes from your um, third, fourth, and fifth uh, segment of your cervical spine. Yeah, right. So, so on the on the innervation of the diaphragm, is is that something that is specifically controlled or semi-consciously controlled? How does that how does that work um yeah it's it's all through your brainstem and through your medulla so it definitely comes back to your central nervous system so if you're at a relaxed state um, and your nervous system um, is freely working it's not a problem it's when you have um, aspects of anxiety or stress that your nervous system may, may not function as well yeah okay because obviously when you when you're asleep you're not controlling it are you it sort of happens yeah, and your body's at rest. Um, yeah, and there's there's triggers, isn't there, Rod, in terms of um, respiratory rate, in terms of the amount of carbon dioxide that's um, in your blood that triggers an increase in respiration rate. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole bunch of different physiological things that can happen at various different sort of points, um, you know, from things that are occurring in the blood to muscle contraction, um, pressure sensors within the body that can all um, send signals to either increase or decrease um, your respiration. Yeah, right. So it happens semi-automatically, although we can obviously override that, which, which you do frequently. The diaphragm is obviously a key player. And as you've said, Lizzie, um, it, 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 is, it requires freedom also, I guess, through your, through your rib cage, not only for the movement, but also for the innovation from the, um, from the nervous system. Um, 
in terms of the the typical pattern of say say somebody who's working reasonably aerobically like say they're doing a, a long solid aerobic session um, and they're running let's take rowing out of it for instance the diaphragm's working what else is at play there yeah so obviously there's a huge um, musculoskeletal component where your diaphragm when we start to work harder it then accounts for can account for 65 percent of that inhalation phase compared yep. to 100 percent when we are at rest um, but there's also what we call the accessory muscles of breathing that then come into play. So you have your three aspects of your scalenes, your pec minor and major, uh, lap dorsi, serratus ant, um, and QL. So there's then a huge variety of muscles that then have to get in on the game to provide um, that increased volume that we need. And why why is it that the percentage drops? Is, is it just that these other muscle, the diaphragm continues to do about the same amount of work as it's typically doing and the other ones come in to... to to increase the extra volume that's required at exercise. Exactly, that, exactly yeah, right. to enhance that. Okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's not so it's not just like a every every muscle group improves. The diaphragm is like the base of the cake and it's always that's the foundation of breathing and the other ones are the exercise required additions to. Yeah, to absolutely. Yeah. And then I suppose it's when we see dysfunctional breathing that those accessory muscles then do the, the majority of the work and the diaphragm actually gets taken out of it that the, the way we breathe, so that inhalation phase, your diaphragm doesn't then expand. So it's when we get you know those chest breathers rather than your, your belly yeah. breathers um, is a common thing that we see in practice. So let's talk about that then um, in terms of dysfunction. Why, why would somebody stop using their diaphragm? What, what, are the, what are possible reasons for that happening? Yeah, it can be from uh, a purely musculoskeletal perspective, so potentially postures. Yep. Um, I know definitely in rowing, the fact that you're sitting um, often on the, the back of your seat in more of a what we call a slumped position, um, then it can be difficult to actually uh, let the diaphragm descend and ascend during that respiration phase because the pressure has been decreased in that abdominal cavity. Yep. So it can be posture is, is a big one. Um, other respiratory um, concerns, of course, asthma, um, um, COPD, stress, anxiety, all those things can play a role in how much um, how much our diaphragm is actually used and, and practiced to use. So COPD, just for everybody. Uh, um, <laughs> coronary, sorry, chronic um, obstructive. Thank you, pulmonary, pulmonary disease. Yeah. Yep. And what is that in in Bill's terms? COPD. <laughs> Uh, what does it mean though? Oh, it's when the airways are restricted. Right, okay, so it's... <laughs> it's a general, it's a broad term that, yeah, it covers, yeah, a number of, could be a number of different disorders. Yeah, okay. Um, so, and we'll talk a little bit about asthma in a moment, but probably one thing you touched on there was posture. Now, mm. that's probably where we come a little bit to rowing, isn't it, in mm. one sense. So, um, obviously, when you're lying down and you're in a, in a straight position from head to, to heel, um, that's probably the optimal uh, posture for your diaphragm to operate. Um, yeah, it, it can be the, the easiest position. Yeah. And presumably, if I then cramp myself up into like um, almost like a fetal position, or pull my knees right up to my chest. I mean, that is closing up my um, abdominal cavity and, and also putting pressure on my chest cavity. I just assume nat naturally, mechanically, that's going to be a lot more difficult for the diaphragm to operate. Would yeah, that be simple? Absolutely. And so, I guess in a very layperson sense, that's why I imagine rowing is challenging at times for breathing. Would that be yeah. reasonable to assume? Absolutely. 
And I wonder, you know, since I've since we've been exploring and talking about this over the last few years, you know, every time I get on the ergo, I play around with my breathing pattern, and it's I find it incredible how uh, irregular it is within a um, within a stroke cycle. Like it's not like if you're on the bike and you're working hard at threshold, you get into that out in out in out, and the rowing one will be uh, in hold out in hold. It's really um, almost. It's like staccato sort of rhythm. It's not. It's not a natural sort of beat. And I, I think that in watching rowers, it's very typical, isn't it? Mm, and I think that's. I suppose where we come back to with why we were focusing on it because uh, there's so many different tempos in rowing as well. There's the start, which is a, a lot quicker, and the stroke yeah. rate is higher. And then you have to settle into, I suppose, your mid-race rhythm, and then you come up again. So to modulate your breathing into that is is quite challenging because your breathing rhythm is actually locked into the rowing rhythm as well isn't it yeah. and i think that that is a really interesting part that i think we've seen with a couple of athletes who've, who i've dealt with that have had some breathing issues is often when they work very hard in the start at very high rate and they then settle the stroke rate down but they're in in inverted commas oxygen debt um, at that stage, and they're trying to replenish um, everything, and they're, they're sort of almost gasping for air because they they almost want uh, a breath in between the breaths they're naturally taking within the rhythm of the boat. And I imagine that's something that a lot of people would relate to if they've actually been through a rowing race. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think um, you know, I know from my Pilates background as well that there is um, you know air um, the way we breathe can help facilitate movement and it can help inhibit movement. So. If I apply that to rowing, yeah. how, how do we do that in in a rhythm that is constantly evolving and changing, and the demands are, are different? So that so and I suppose that's a little like in you know Pilates or yoga, for instance. You know, you do you breathe in on a certain movement to promote doing that movement correctly. Mm. It's not really something that we're ever certainly not not something I was ever taught as a rower that there was a time to breathe to actually optimize your posture or position. But when you actually think about it on the rowing machine or in the boat, if you try and reverse where you breathe, it almost prevents you from getting into a position. Mm, definitely, um, definitely. Yeah, yeah but for me, it's, it's super interesting because when we first started talking about this a couple of years ago, it, it was a really new concept for me. So, you know, all your classic exercise physiology textbooks will tell you that unless you have some sort of breathing disorder like asthma or something, uh, you know, ventilation or respiration isn't a limiting factor for exercise performance. And, you know, that might be true in a sport like running where your ventilation and, you know, respiratory rate and so on isn't limited by your cadence. Yeah. Um, and, so and cycling would be the and same. And cycling would be the same. Unless you're on a time trial yeah, position. I think, yeah, time trial position is probably, you know, the where it's maybe obstructed in terms of how much you can get in, but yeah. less maybe in terms of cadence. and. Um, interestingly, you know, I was reading a little while ago that from an evolutionary standpoint, as humans, um, being able to run without uh, out of time of cadence is a huge evolutionary advantage. So if we're chasing prey, um, you know, in the savannah, yeah. almost every single other animal when they run has to breathe with their cadence. Really? And humans don't. So that's a big evolutionary um, advantage. But and so, you know, sort of getting through early years of sports science, I never considered breathing to be a thing unless you had some sort of breathing disorder. Yeah. And then, yeah, watching rowers row, you're like, oh, you, you absolutely have to row within 
the, the stroke cycle, um, you know, how are you going to breathe freely? You, you need to really think about how you're breathing, or if you're not, you probably should. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's yeah, very interesting for me. And we'll talk in a moment about some of the patterns that you've seen from some of the testing we've done as well. I think which mm. might highlight some of that stuff. Maybe um, before we do, Lizzie, in terms of um, common dysfunctions, you mentioned obviously the COPD mm-hmm. and asthma. Mm. Um, if we can walk through a couple of those. So let's talk about asthma first and foremost. So there's obviously like asthma that people get when they're kids. Um, that's a, um, you know, it's a disorder or what, whatever it is. First of all, what is it? And second of all, is there such thing as exercise induced asthma? Yeah. So asthma is essentially the restriction of your bronchioles. So, um, sorry, constriction of your bronchioles. So less air is getting into your lungs. Um, Then there's the old exercise-induced asthma, and it can be a misdiagnosed thing as well because there's other common um, uh, respiratory um, restrictions that can occur. You can um, get restriction through your laryngeal, um, through your throat. So it's really important that you do get it diagnosed appropriately so that you can either... um, you know, have medication or um, alter your training or um, seek musculoskeletal help. So it's a really wide variety. And I think when people say, oh, I can't breathe during exercise, it's almost automatically um, diagnosed as exercise-induced asthma where it may not be that. So it's really important that you do go and go to the doctor and actually get that sorted out because it's a big factor in our breathing. Yeah, yeah. So it could be that you're you change something about the way you breathe naturally in, from a mechanical sense mm. when you do exercise that is actually causing the problem, not an actual uh, in to- inside the lung. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because I find, especially in, um, in practice in clinic, I have a lot of people that do not breathe down into their diaphragm, so they'll breathe up into their chest, particularly, it's interesting in clinic, I'm, I'm not sure of the studies on this, but um, women particularly don't breathe down into their diaphragm because they're trying to always draw their stomach in for a postural <laughs> and a, um, I suppose, an aesthetic point of view. So even well, to... Men don't do that. I'm, that is I'm sure I've been guilty of that at times. So I think it's, it's the way that, um, you know, we've been um, brought up in this world and, and the social influences on us, um, how we actually are taught to breathe. You know, if we put our hands on our, on our stomach and breathe, you know, where does the air go when you breathe in? Where does the air go when you breathe out? And even a simple test like that, I find, is enough to figure out what's, what's going on yeah. you know, in the immediate sense. So from a clinical point of view, what are the sort of things you deal with? So you deal with people that come in um, that have you know, postural issues and it's affecting their breathing. Maybe just tell us a little bit about some of that sort of stuff that you've experienced in a clinical sense. Yeah, I suppose in terms of uh, osteopathy, a lot of it, we look at um, rib cage mechanics and thoracic spine mechanics, which is our mid to upper back. Um, and often if there's a, a rib dysfunction um, that's usually causing the patient a lot of pain, their breathing will alter. So it's really challenging then to get someone to stretch that rib or do this because it's so painful. So often it's really gentle breathing and we use breathing to try and expand the muscles that sit between the ribs, our intercostals, so that we can just get a little bit more movement into that joint. There are I think it's 146 joints that are involved in breathing so it's wow, just a lot, it's it? just huge oh, right. what our body 
um, is required to do with a simple movement that, as you say, we don't often think Take too much hand, about. Yeah. So my main thing is educating people on where the air should be going. So when they breathe in, the diaphragm should be filling up. And then as they breathe out, the air should be going out of the diaphragm. So they should actually be reducing the amount of volume they have inside their their rib cage. Um, uh, uh, then as we move on from that, it's then um, having that education around the lateral, uh, the expansion that goes out to the sides from us. So ensuring that there's air, there's air going into those pockets of the, of the ribs and the lungs as well. And then that um, posterior or the back part of our rib cage. So we often think of it as almost just through our diaphragm, through our belly, but there's actually, it's a three dimensional, three -dimensional shape. Thing, yeah. yeah. And then, so, also, you talked about people that breathe up into their necks and, and up there. Now, I think that's certainly me. Um, when, if I'm under pressure or whatever, I know I, I'll, I can get to that. Rod's laughing. He's probably seen it before when I'm battling away. Oh, exactly the same, I think. So, and look, I'm fairly tall. Rod doesn't have this excuse, but I know even sitting here, like I'm folded over, you know, this is society has put me in this position I'm blaming well, everyone else. Maybe because you're talking to me and I'm about <laughs> five foot tall. So it doesn't help having short friends. But that, that is a factor though, isn't it? Like, so um, I, I know I could very easily, if I don't think about it, I could get back into that. And if I start feeling under pressure, my neck will get tight. I'll, I'll have all sorts of neck and thoracic um, referred pain. And part of it, I think, is driven by poor breathing mechanics. Is that is that a common thing that you would... Very, very common. With? You think about um, even office workers, so the typical sitting in computer with that forward posture and then having to breathe in that position, the air is actually not allowed to go fully yeah. into their diaphragm. So where does it go? It just sits up in your chest. And I find gravity an amazing thing. Usually it works pretty well to keep things down, but for shoulders and neck, it our shoulders and neck, it defy, they defy gravity. They're always up around people's ears. And, and forward. And forward, exactly. So it, they must do a hell of a lot of work to, um, to try and allow you to breathe when the diaphragm's not working as, as it should. So I, I put some of those things together. So um, it seems like a bit of a perfect storm for a rower in one sense, this whole thing, because you're tall. Rowers are generally pretty tall, so maybe they end up slumping down where there is to like just deal with short people <laughs> or also just to sit in on computer desks and just in everyday life. They, they operate in a posture in the boat, which is um, hip, um, you know, hip flex position, uh, almost into that cramp position with the shoulders forward to try and get reach out to take the catch. And we're in a sport where we don't have that ability to use our evolutionary advantage of <laughs> modulating our breathing with our requirements for air or oxygen. We're locked into the rhythm of the boat, which might be dictated to by some other person down the other end of the boat. So it's like a perfect storm, isn't it, for problems with... It, it sure is. Yeah. It's, um, and so why do then, are we doing this podcast? It's exactly that, isn't yeah. it? It's such an untapped area. Yeah, and it, I think it really is. It's, it's not an area that... that there's any certainly in a lot of the coaching courses that I've done and seen there's no discussion around it um, I think partly because it's a very hard thing for people to conceptualize because generally people aren't that aware of it mm. but and maybe this is a good segue now to start talking about some of the common things that we have seen in rowing a little bit and might get Rod to, to throw some stuff in so where a lot of this started was dealing with a couple of athletes who were having trouble in that space and, and I think uh, coaches out there could probably think through their um, coaching lifespans with crews, they would they would know a number of athletes that have dealt with this sort of problem. We see them athletes, Rod, who seem to struggle um, 
un, uh, unexpectedly struggle with high intensity exercise almost. Mm. They, they just, based on their fitness and their capacity, they just don't seem to handle things at VO2 as well as they should. We started actually seeing some of that measurably in some of the lab testing, didn't we? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, one of the advantages of the lab test is it measures all of these things that we're, well, not all, but a lot of the things that we're talking about in terms of ventilation, uh, you know, rates, so breathing rates, breath per minute, um, the amount of air you're getting in per breath, um, and the amount of air you're getting in per minute, if you sort of combine the two. Um, and yeah, we had a really good example of, a, of an athlete who was on, on the national team, uh, was an Olympian last year, um, and you know, really, you know, good athlete, very, very good athlete. Um, you know, physically speaking, and yeah, just didn't seem to to cope that well with things. Yeah, I guess above above threshold, getting into that higher intensity exercise. And when we looked back at her lab testing, we saw that in the in the maximum step. So, um, you know, when we do our lab testing, there are six sub maximal steps that increase in intensity. You know, from quite low intensity past the first aerobic threshold, and then up to sort of your second lactate threshold, or you know, in inverted commas, threshold as, as we as we talk about it. Mm. And then the last step is is maximal. Go as hard as you can for the last four minutes. And and what we saw with this athlete is that the respiratory rate increased dramatically on that last step and it's sort of so heaps more breaths basically. a lot more breaths breathing a lot faster yeah and, and you do expect that that will happen on the maximal step and, and we've got some data of i guess a more sort of typical response that shows that that is the case um but it was it was really 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 dramatic um and i guess what we saw there that was interesting was that the tidal volume so the amount of air getting in per breath dropped on the final step so usually what we see is both of them increase slightly on that final step and what we're seeing here was yeah an additional like an yeah an additional increase in in breath rate and a drop um, in tidal volume so probably that sort of chest breathing that, that Lizzie was talking about before yeah so there'd be two ways to get more air in when you when you're going up another gear going up your final gear you breathe quicker and you try and get more air in per breath and Either one of those two in isolation, if the other one's held in place, will in increase the amount of air, and both together will increase the amount of air. So you'd think logically people would sort of try and do both. Yeah, generally I think that's the pattern that we normally see. Um, but of course, the one thing that we probably forget about is that there's an additional cost of breathing faster. Lizzie will probably be able to explain this better, but um, you know, more breaths per minute is a greater demand on all of that musculature and and those muscles fatigue just like any any other muscle does so um, yeah an increased demand on those muscles especially at high sort of race intensities um, yeah is going to come at a cost at some point and i think also as we've said it it has to be linked in with the rhythm of the boat so in a step to the finish line, the stroke rate might come up but that's if you're talking about trying to cope with coming off the back of a start in that oxygen debt sort of situation and then you're actually trying to establish a efficient rowing rhythm in a crew you might not be able to breathe as quickly as you need to so if that's if you go to is just increasing um, the breathing rate uh, in rowing that might not actually be effective in a, in a race context might it yeah well yeah exactly exactly right and um, just yeah the, the crew dynamics obviously change things yeah. <laughs> quite a bit and different boat classes will be different because they have different stroke rates so yeah. you know a women's single versus a men's eight are going a lot different speeds and the stroke rates can be you know almost 10 strokes a minute different <laughs> um, through a race so it's quite quite a lot it can make a yeah. really big difference so talking of the data then 
what we did was we went back and we actually had a look back through some historic data and we're, we're lucky to have access to you know a lot of data here at the VIS of um, you know Olympians and, and Olympic medalists over over the years so we went back and looked at one of our most successful males and one of our most successful females and they have different strategies that you were able to identify in terms of their step up to the last step. Yeah, so I guess with this um, this female that we have here, um, probably shows quite a typical pattern, I would say. So in, in that last step, you know, throughout the test, we're seeing tidal volume and respiratory rate increasing gradually. Um, and then on the last step, we see respiratory rate um, increase, I guess, it's pretty much linearly, whereas in the last example, it was, you know, quite a dramatic, dramatic, a, a dramatic increase. Um, and then tidal volume does a similar thing. It's increasing pretty much linearly and then it might increase a little bit more than linearly in the last step. So breathing rate's increased and tidal volume has, you know, potentially there's a, a conscious thought to try to get in more air per breath as mm. opposed to just breathing more as well. Um, and, you know, quite a successful athlete here, you wouldn't be surprised if that athlete was conscious of, of doing something like that. Yeah. And then the male example, which is very interesting. Yeah, this is this one's really interesting. Not at all what I expected to see. Um, we've seen basically the exact opposite um, and the exact opposite of the first example as well. So what happens again, linear increases in respiratory rate and tidal volume in the submaximal stages. And then in the maximal stage, actually the respiratory rate drops dramatically. It, it's sort of... It's around about the same as the, the fourth step of the step tests, which on the way the step test is designed, usually athletes hit the LT1 or aerobic threshold on about the fourth step. So the respiratory rate is similar to what he was doing at top of T2, if you want to call it, or T2, yeah. T3 transition. Um, so that's dropped, but the tidal volume, because of course, if you're doing more exercise, the power is higher. Yeah. Uh, ventilation is very closely linked to um, muscle output and requirement. So you can't have a lower total amount of ventilation in terms of liters per minute if the power goes up. So of course, ventilation has to increase. Yep. If respiratory rate is decreased, we see a massive increase in tidal volume. Um, and so knowing this athlete a little bit, I would think that this, this would have to be a conscious thing. So this athlete, to be really clear, in the final step has started breathing slower and much deeper. Exactly, yeah. Which is, which is fascinating. It's like this athlete's clicked into gear and, and this is like one of the best rowers of all time in one sense, a very successful athlete across a number of fields and a very thoughtful athlete. So we don't think this is accidental. We think this is a, a deliberate strategy that this person has employed and it makes a lot of sense in the context of how you might effectively um, use this in a rowing context because a deeper breath can be modulated with any breathing rhythm that's required for the stroke rate so if the stroke rate is held and the breathing rate is held in one sense by the rhythm of the boat if you're more capable of adjusting your um, the depth and the volume of each breath as your as your way of getting more ventilation, that's probably, you'd suggest, a better strategy in rowing. Logically, yeah, logically it makes yeah. sense. Um, and yeah, to your point, it, I can't imagine you doing this naturally. I, I really, I think the natural thing is you're going as hard as you can, you just start to breathe more and breathe deeper. Yeah. Um, or in the instance where you're not a good breather, in inverted commas, you might breathe a lot more, but shallower if you're taking very sort of shallow chest sort of breathing. Um, this to me seems very deliberate. 
Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, it, it definitely seems deliberate. And to put some numbers on it out of interest here, we're, we're probably around 55 breaths a minute in the final stage. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the sixth stage, which is just above threshold, we're more like 65 or 60. So 10 less breaths per minute, yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit. Um, and to sort of look at some of the others that we've got here, breaths per minute was up at in that first athlete that we, we said had some breathing issues, was it about, got to about 75 breaths per minute by the end, which is yeah. you know, 20 breaths per minute difference. That's, that's a lot. Um, yeah. And in, in, the, in the other female Olympian, uh, where are we here? It's probably more like, yeah, again, in the mid fifties, low to mid fifties, about 53, 55 sort of thing. And that's, so that's on an ergo where Typically, if you're doing a max step on a stationary ergo with a mask on, they're going to rate 34, yeah, 35, 34, 35, something like that. So you'd actually think then the the stroke, the breathing rate, if they're going to breathe twice per stroke, is going to be about 65 to 70, somewhere in that range. And that so somewhere between 65 and 80 is going to be a typical breathing range in a rowing race. If you if you're going to be sort of held or wedded to breathing twice per stroke and the stroke rate is going to be somewhere between 35 and 40. Logically, yeah, but um, the data doesn't seem to show that. It seems well, to be less. Yeah, they're... well, that's interesting. That's on the ergo where they mm. have, there is some ability for them to be able to get an extra breath in here or there if they need to or, or skip a breath if they need to mm. and manage the rhythm. Maybe that's not as possible in the boat. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to know. Um, yeah. You know, I'm I sure there are definitely ways to that. measure it. Um, oh, look, I mean, there are um, metabolic carts that you can take out um, outdoors. Yeah, I don't see that. Yeah, we, they, that yeah, they do. Yeah, they do exist. They do exist. They're probably not as reliable as um, as the stationary ones, but um, they do exist. You might even be able to do it visually with um, uh, you know video and watching yeah. them breathing out. Um, but interestingly, I'm sort of looking at some of the running data that we have from our athletics athletes here um, yep. at BIS and. Uh, on the maximum stage, one athlete here is sort of in the low 60s breaths per minute, which is you know, higher than where the other two were other than the, the one that was breathing really, really heavily. Uh, another one here, and these, these are good athletes, Olympic finalists sort of athletes in yeah. sort of distance, middle distance running. Uh, yeah, another guy here who's sort of in the low 60s, about 62. Um, so that, that might be typical where if cadence isn't limiting, you can, you can do it at 62 quite comfortably um, and successfully. Whereas, you know, rowing, maybe it needs to be a bit, little bit less. Yeah, that's oh, really interesting. So I guess bringing that back then, Lizzie, um, if, if we sort of accept that maybe finding the volume is probably the bigger performance opportunity, a couple of things that, that you said earlier that really struck a chord with me. The first and foremost one is you, you talked about the external intercostal muscles. Now, one of the things I know from dealing with our medical staff over you know dozens of rib stress fractures in the last 20 years is that tightness in those muscles and in the thoracic uh, cage is always linked or always indicated in people that have a rib stress fracture and I think that's fairly logical so the rib stress fracture is happening mechanically because of, of the rowing movement if that's then tightening those muscles that's the other side of you know you're going to be susceptible for rib stress but you're also going to be limiting your potential to breathe in one sense yeah. or your breathing volume is that yeah absolutely i think there's so much that we don't know about breathing mechanics and how much um, the muscles then have to work at that extra intensity as well but there's no doubt that 
um, the, all those muscles that sit around the diaphragm that then are those accessory muscles um, of respiration just have to work extremely hard when they're under that amount of pressure added to that when you're in a race environment which is then another layer of stress, stress and anxiety yeah. we know that breathing does change during stress and anxiety so you've as you say before we're at the perfect storm in mm. a, a rowing race or, or a running race so uh, the fact that um, that we don't focus that much on breathing through our own training and through our own racing is uh, a real opportunity, I would think. Yeah. So I think what might be worth having a think about then is, well, what, what are some strategies that you could speculate or you might suggest that people could start thinking about if they're considering some of uh, uh, dealing with some of this stuff, trying to optimise this sort of thing? Yeah, I, I don't think it needs to be fancy at mm. all. Um all we need to do is actually focus on or look at how we're breathing at rest, um, how we breathe when we have a little bit of intensity through our exercise, how we breathe when it's more intense, how we breathe during training. Yep. So do we breathe through our chest? Do we breathe through our, our diaphragm? What is our posture like in the boat? Um, and the ergo is a, gr a great tool that we can use, especially for the coaches, you know, if they want to provide some feedback for the athletes, you know, what's their posture like, look at their breathing, you know, video them, slow it down. There's so many simple things that we can do, um, you know, without having a, a lab testing option available to us. Yeah. And I, I suppose one of the good examples that we played with, which I think was really useful and is possibly worth people considering is that people spend a lot of time doing base stuff on the ergometer and it's boring you know they're just sort of trudging along and one of the things we tried um, with a women's aid a few years ago was to actually use those base sessions where they the we weren't so uh, focused on what their intensity was they were working with we were more thinking about their breathing so we would actually get them rowing you know together in time whatever you do it with an individual and then coach them through the breathing and at that point but what's required before that is a recognition from the athlete that awareness is is critical isn't it so it's yeah. about setting up that the base stuff understanding how they breathe and yeah huge and if there are any uh, mechanical restrictions uh, through the spine through the rib cage through any of those joints um, or if there's a medical restriction as well mm. that that they are dealt with first yep. so that then it is optimal when you are in the boat yeah 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 one thing you mentioned earlier as well, Lizzie, is obviously the, the sort of semi-automated function of the breathing pattern is, is governed um, or is, is uh, innovated by the central nervous system. Something we talked about a lot um, in podcasts is the effect of fatigue and central fatigue on the function of the central nervous system, Rodney, and that's obviously something that we sort of get a bit of a measure on when we're talking about heart rate variability. Um, that's a question that throws up a little bit from, from me a little bit, Rod, is are you aware of any changes in uh, breathing function for people who might be you know, suffering more of that central fatigue, the long accumulated fatigue? I'm not. Really good question though. Um, yeah. But in terms of monitoring heart rate variability, there's a thought out there, and, and the data's not super clear, but that your respiratory rate can influence your heart rate variability. So some of the uh, I guess protocols of measuring your heart rate variability out there suggest that you should control your breathing rate um, because that will give you a more stable measurement so yeah I mean the two are certainly linked um, I, I can't answer your question yeah. but um, it's yeah, interesting it makes logically, a bit of logical sense yeah if, if your central nervous system is a sense uh, you know the parasympathetic side of, of your 
the control system and the fatigue that comes on from that long accumulated training, not the thing I just did today, but the the ongoing stuff and I'm centrally fatigued and that's suppressing my central nervous system, then that could potentially affect your ability to be able to operate the, your breathing mechanics properly and it sort of logically makes sense. It'd be really interesting to look at some of that, I reckon. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly many other systems and muscular systems will be influenced by mm. central nervous system fatigue. So, you know, why should this be different? Yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit like if you have um, an iron-based anemia you know your muscles aren't able to perform as well so then if we're breathing the muscles function isn't able to perform as well either so it's even though we think about our muscles and our um, the red blood cell count in a power and a strength point of view what does that mean for breathing as well yeah absolutely it has to make a difference doesn't it there's so much involved in all all of this. I think that we could actually spend a lot of time talking through this, but maybe we might do a bit more investigation on some of these things and see what is actually available out there. But I thought to sort of wrap this up a little bit, Lizzie, we might uh, have a short segue and then come back and talk about maybe just some basics that people can be aware of in terms of starting to get their own identification and maybe some things that you would walk through with a patient clinically so they can figure out a little bit about what their, their breathing rate is. So I come and see you, Lizzie, just as I do, and I, I walk in hobbling in through the door and you say, well, actually, your hip's rooted because you're uh, you're not breathing properly. Well, I don't use that language. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly not in a clinical space. Um, what what would be a good starting point to help me figure this out? Yeah, so if I had, a, a, if I had you come in, uh, I'd get you um, on the, my treatment table, on your back with your knees slightly bent and your hands on your belly. So we We've then done that before too. Yeah, yeah. So we then I'd ask you to breathe normally and and see what happens. Do you breathe up into your chest? Are your hands actually moving up and down on your belly? What what does that look like? Say you weren't doing that, then we'd educate you to try and actually get some air down through your belly, down into your pelvis. Really think about where your air is going and it being more of a conscious movement rather than you just walking around breathing and not being aware of it. So that is always my first place to start to get the patient aware and get them educated on where and how they should be breathing. Yep. then I would probably then apply that on a, a functional activity, whether it's in the gym or on the ergometer in this in this point of view. Um, are they still able to achieve that same form of breathing in a relaxed state um, without the overlay of intensity yeah. on top of it? But definitely educating the person to breathe into their belly is quite amazing. You, you find that there are a lot of people that don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are people that can help you with that, aren't there? Now, obviously, you work clinically as, a, as an osteo. There are, there are people who are trained in this sort of space that if, if people are interested and curious, they can go and seek uh, help in this. It's yeah, not hugely. There's, there's a wide range of um, options, even from seeking out um, GPs, physiotherapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, massage therapists, myotherapists. There's a huge range of people who have different skills in all these areas. So that's why I mentioned before, it's important to get a a very clear diagnosis on what is restricting you with your breathing rather than, um, so definitely seeking medical attention in the first point and ruling out any of those um, more serious conditions that could be modified with medication 
as well, and then seeking help um, once those are ruled out or in conjunction yeah, with right. those specialists. The, the, probably the final one for me um, is around the, the specific training that we might do around improving our respiratory function. Now, obviously, training of any kind does that, but there are things like the power breathe and those sort of devices that people um, use, and there's been, there has been start studies done in rowing that have showed, you know, percentage improvement, percentage point improvements in VO2 from using power breathes. One of the questions that I have about that though is, I, I imagine like any muscle, all of the breathing muscles will improve with, um, you know, if you apply the standard principle of overload and then supercompensation, that, that will occur. But if I have a breathing dysfunction pattern and I use a power breathe, so say I came in and breathed the way I naturally would breathe right up into my, um, into my neck, and I just trained those muscles to be stronger, almost, you're almost reinforcing the wrong pattern. Would, could that be a, a, a problem with people addressing the strength of their breathing before they address the mechanics of it? Yeah, absolutely. It's like uh, doing a, a dysfunctional squat in the gym. You know, it won't apply to anything in the boat. You actually have to have your technique that matches. So it absolutely applies to breathing mm. as well. Those muscles absolutely will get stronger, but you may not see... Um, positive outcomes in terms of your uh, your testing. Yeah, it's really uh, really important. You've got to take your time, don't you, to figure it out first and foremost. Very good. Well, Lizzie, thanks for coming in. It's been you know really interesting today, and there's probably even more topics to cover on this, and we might have to grab you again at some stage to follow up a little bit more. But if people who have heard this are interested in finding out a little bit more. Um, and or even coming and seeing an excellent osteo where can they find you so i work at health and balance osteopathy uh, in eaglemont uh, in victoria uh, great little practice um, and i really enjoy treating all kinds of musculoskeletal complaints not just breathing but it's been interesting i think um, with my rowing background uh, and with your support as well to to try and nut out what's actually happening because everyone is very different. Yeah, it sure is. Well, it's, it's an area of growth and, and, and an area that we want to explore further. So thanks again for coming in, Lizzie, and uh, I'd be really interested to hear out there if anyone's got any questions on this, but it's definitely a topic that we're going to sort of cover a little bit more in depth. Rodney, thanks for your contribution today. Very interesting to hear some of the uh, technical backgrounds there as well in terms of the stuff that you've observed. Yeah, cheers. And yeah, thanks, Lizzie, for coming in. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, fellas.